0: I feel like the the core bond markets, which is the government markets and the tips market, they're looking at all this information and they're saying that, you know, look, the Fed and the the U.S. government, obviously valiant efforts. They did a massive campaign in March and April to try to stop the bleeding in the economy, but they perhaps maybe shot a lot of their ammo too quick. And now they've really limited the ability to actually arrest any sort of second wave, both in COVID, but also a second wave in the economy slowing down in a more proper recession.
1: What's going on, guys? It is Thursday, July 30th, and today we are talking about the story that the bond market has been telling us that we are not paying attention to. To tell that story, I have guest George Goncalves, but first, the brief. First up on the brief today, it is the jobless claims and GDP story. So what happened? First, the GDP story. The US economy contracted at a record rate last quarter. It fell at 32.9% annual rate and was 9.5% lower than the same quarter last year. This is the steepest drop in records dating back to 1947. Now, the thing that takes the sting out of this a little bit is that this was expected. This is the GDP story of a quarter where we saw mandated shutdowns of business. So, of course, there was a huge, huge dip. The less good part of the story is that rather than being full-on into a big V-shaped recovery, we're seeing dangerous signals in other areas as well, which gets us to the jobless claims numbers. Initial jobless claims were up a second week in a row. They were up 12,000 claims to 1.43 million. I don't really need to make it clear that this is the opposite of the direction that we want these numbers to go. Even more disturbing, however, was that the continuing claims are way up, 867,000 total higher continuing claims than last week, which is the biggest jump since early May. In total, there are more than 17 million continuing claims. One of the key go-forward questions of the economy is how we can coexist with the virus, and these initial jobless claims and the high continuous claims make it a scary question to ask. Next up, let's review the big tech hearings in Congress, and guess what? It was a whole big bunch of nothing, just like we thought it was going to be. The questioning of the four tech CEOs, Amazon, Alphabet, Apple, and Facebook, went pretty much exactly like you would expect, with every congressperson using their five minutes to score political points and grab soundbites that they could use for their constituencies to help their re-election campaigns, etc., etc. What you should actually be watching in this big tech versus government space, because this is a narrative trend, this is a key theme to be watching, is, of course, TikTok. There has been a ton of TikTok news this week. First, the platform has come out hard against Facebook and Instagram, saying that their copycat features are basically attacks disguised as patriotism. TikTok has opened its algorithm to try to basically counteract claims that it's just a tool of the CCP allowing people to visibly see how things are promoted or not. And finally, they've launched a $2 billion creator fund, so they are trying very aggressively to keep people on their platform versus having them go to a quote-unquote U.S. alternative. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Donald Trump keep saying that they are interested in banning TikTok potentially, which will be a really seminal moment in the history of the internet, should it happen. I also thought this tweet from Dovey Wan was really interesting, where she wrote, TikTok is being approached by US investors to be an independent company and valued at 50 billion amid current US-China tension. If the founder of ByteDance, which is a Chinese company, is convinced to proceed, which likely won't happen, he will be considered as a non-patriotic trader by many Chinese with harsh scrutiny. The battle to have sovereign control over massive internet traffic endpoints like TikTok will be even more fierce in the future. I joked that maybe this is what Bill Ackman's unicorn SPAC could spend its huge amount of dry powder on, is getting TikTok to be shifted out of ByteDance in China and into a US shell. But I think that it is a fascinating question. And I think that the story of where this is going to play out more than anywhere else in the short term, at least, is in the context of TikTok. Another way of saying it is that I'm not sure that the US versus tech alone narrative is going to really drum up the type of support it needs to get Basically, it would take Republicans getting over their antitrust feelings to actually make a difference, and I don't see that happening. But a China-owned company, that has two political narratives that can be used as well at the same time. Big tech on the one hand and the US versus China on the other. Lastly, and speaking of multiple narratives, let's talk about Robin Hood piling into Kodak. So it was just announced that Kodak is going to be the recipient of a $765 million loan from the government to retrofit its capacity to manufacture drugs. It is up 2,760% this week on the news, and a part of that is Robinhood users. 79,000 of them added Kodak around the announcement, which made it 15 times more popular than the next stock. Now the crazy thing is that as media focuses on the 79,000 Robinhood users and the 2700% growth and all that, what they're not noticing is that the day before the announcement there was a 30x increase in volume the day before the announcement happened. As at Tesla charts TC put it, a whole lot of people committed felonies on July 27th in Kodak stock. This is insane guys a 30x increase in volume around the Kodak stock, which had been doing nothing, absolutely nothing for a very long time, because there was about to be an announcement that it was the recipient of this huge government grant. Wild. Absolutely wild. It matters because there's two converging trends here. One is the aspect of narrative warfare and retail as a market force, but the second is reshoring and the push to have companies come home and manufacture in the U.S. I think this is going to be one of the dominant narratives over the next few years, and so it's interesting to see it impact markets right away. Speaking of market impact, today's main conversation is about bonds and what they tell us about the markets. My guest today is George Goncalves, and as you'll hear, he has been in and around markets for 20 or more years. He is focused on bond markets and has a huge breadth of experience to share in that light. In our conversation, we talk about something that he said actually right before we started recording. He said, the bond market has been the truth teller for decades, but no one wants to pay attention. This conversation is all about what the bond market is telling us that we're not paying attention to and why we should maybe look over and understand what those signals are trying to say. As with all long interviews, this is edited only very slightly, so let's dive in. All right, I am back with George Goncalves. George, thanks so much for hanging out today. It's great to be here. So George, let's start for people who don't know and aren't familiar with you. Could you just share a little bit about it, your background and uh, and what you spend your time on?
0: Sure. I'm um you know, going on over 20 years bond market veteran um which, you know, means you know, I, I've been a a strategist, uh worked in in the trading desks. I've been both on the sell side and buy side, you know, which, you know, in our world, means you know the you know, asset management as well as you know the dealer broker dealer side of selling securities. Most recently, I was you know the chief rate strategist and then later the the head of the fixed income strategy groups uh, for the Americas at Nomura Securities, a Japanese uh, investment bank, covered you know pretty much every single fixed income asset class over the last twenty plus years from from munis to credit, primarily focused on you know U.S. rates, government markets, inflation, and uh, you know. Now, at, th- at this juncture, I'm solo on a, on a freelance basis, uh, primarily on Twitter under the, the handle at Bond Strategist, and really just enjoying my time trying to you know, get out some complex information to the broader world and trying to make sense of the nonsense.
1: So, I mean, that's a perfect segue. You know, you and I have been talking about doing this for a while, but we thought maybe we'd put it around the latest uh, FOMC meeting, which obviously just they, they kind of did their wrap up yesterday. So, let's kick off there. I mean I, first of all, what does a bond strategist look for in the context of a Fed meeting? What are you watching, and then second, what was, if anything, notable, unexpected, or interesting about uh, about the meeting this week?
0: You yeah, know I think yeah we really you know helpful I think your audience would appreciate you know what goes through our minds you know when folks are sitting on a trading desk or you know specifically like bond folks you know but i think this is probably true to any sort of researcher that's watching you know what the fed and trying to parse what the fed is saying and 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 of course you know the fed day is is the the key big one i mean i think it, you know just kind of breaking it down i think your audience would appreciate how we we go about it i mean there's you know really you know two or three big pieces of information that get relayed on on fed day and you first start off by, you know, taking a, a quick snapshot and mental look at like where markets are heading into the actual announcements and in, in, into the news news that comes out. Uh, you know, so you know, everyone has their news wires pumping in. And, and that's true for both, you know, uh, for us humans as well as the algo type systems that are looking for keywords. Now everyone's looking at, you know, what's going to be relayed quickly as the headlines break. And then you know we we you know we move quickly to trying to comparing and contrasting what was said in you know in prior statements you know trying to triangulate what you know recent Fed speakers have said does that corroborate with what the general message of the statement is you know you know truth be told yesterday we didn't really get much in the statement we got more in the press conference which is the second piece of which is really the most critical part and that's where you know the you know Chair Powell and really can convey you know the the message of what you know the committee you know is trying to relate to the markets and to the world, and you know the the press conference is much more dynamic. I think that you know you know we keep on 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 screen your favorite financial media uh news outlet for me it's Bloomberg. I have that in the background. I have this uh real time script that's going through and reading every single word that the fed you know, chair Powell is saying because they actually provide a website that you can actually see the q and A's real time. And you can kind of scan through and get a feel for, you know, like what what he's saying. And, and then at the, uh, at the end of it, we go back and digest like what was new and, you know, is it material or not material? So that's like, I think in a nutshell, how, you know, a strategist or a research analyst on on any sort of desk would go through and try to break down what the Fed is trying to convey. I mean, yesterday, you know, you know, at first blush, it really didn't feel like much. I mean, they basically have said the same thing uh, in, in prior statements. Um, they're, you know, they're not looking to uh, tighten anytime soon. Of course not. I mean, in fact, they're looking for ways to impart further easing. But there are, I think, a, a number of takeaways that I think are worth at least kind of you know putting out there. I mean, for one, if we think about the um, the growth outlook, I mean, everyone's been pretty bulled up. Uh, at least in the risk market side, a lot, a lot of folks have been bulled up, but the bond market hasn't been as much. I know we're going to touch on that later. But you know the Fed um, mentioned a number of times, I think over six times, that the, the rate of change is slowing on economic data. You know, rate of change is the most important thing in everything that we look at. And so when the Fed is like saying it over and over again that the rate of change is slowing, you got to take notice. And I think that the market is starting to figure that out and, and will figure that out over the course of August. Uh that was uh, that was really important. You know, discussions around fiscal and that really you know the baton has to get passed to, to fiscal side. Meanwhile, we're heading into an election, which might make that more acrimonious. Um and they're discussing the framework and they just, and, and they mentioned you know a number of things around: hey, we don't think we're doing QE, but by the way, they're buying 120 billion per month of m- mortgages mortgages and, and, and treasuries. They view that more as still market functioning which tells you a lot and and for a lot of of different reasons. And um, they mentioned that the swap lines are going to be extended to March 31st, which is actually very interesting because the day before they had extended the credit programs, which they had painstakingly spent so much time putting in place until the end of the year. So interesting that they're putting the dollar funding mechanisms over year end all the way through March 31st which, you know, that's a signal in and of itself.
1: Bitstamp is the original global cryptocurrency exchange. Since 2011, Bitstamp has been the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors, trusted by over 4 million customers, including top financial institutions. Bitstamp is built on professional-grade trading technology. Their platform is powered by a NASDAQ matching engine, and their APIs are recognized as the best in the industry. Download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro. What's going on, guys? I'm excited to share that one of this month's breakdown sponsors is Crypto.com. Crypto.com offers one of the most cost efficient ways to purchase crypto out there, as they've just waived the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases. What's more, with Crypto.com's MCO Visa card, you can get up to 10% back on things like food and grocery shopping. When you buy gift cards with the Crypto.com app, you can get up to 20% back. Download the Crypto.com app today and enjoy these offers until the end of September. Kind of coming back to these these different signals that you're p- pulling out from from yesterday, I almost feel like there's a, sort of like a two part process for for anyone who's trying to analyze this. One is you know what what is your interpretation as the analyst of what's being said, but then second is almost kind of triangulating what the market interprets it as. So it's kind of like these two layers of of, of analysis is you know what what you thought the the Fed was saying and then how the market was receiving it and whether it was different. So I guess you know you you're kind of sharing. That in general, at a high level, people's interpretation ha- was that there wasn't a lot new. I mean, is that the case, or is it, is there more nuance than that?
0: I think it's 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 increasingly becoming more evident that there it's more nuanced than that. That you know that that they're looking at high frequency data and they're noticing that there is a slowdown happening, and that what we saw in you know, coming out in May June, you know, really was just you know a bounce back from the lockdown, and that and that was to be expected. And I think that now getting nervous that, you know, we're entering into this kind of no man's land between now and October, really November, where it's going to be hard to really, you know, up the ante. I mean, of course, the Fed has some tools. We could discuss what those are. But I I feel like it's a subtle signal that they're getting nervous that the fiscal fiscal side has to get their act together and provide relief. And will it be enough? And, And I think they're worried about that
1: yeah I think this is really interesting uh you know it's been fascinating over the last two weeks in particular as the kind of may and june data has rolled in that there's this kind of psychic fracturing and schizophrenia in the narrative machine uh, on the one hand there are all these things that look better but on the other hand the data that's more kind of contemporary right that's more in the moment things like jobless claims uh, you know and, and a variety of other you know credit card purchases and things like that yeah. are telling the same story that the virus numbers are telling which is that you know holding aside any mandated shutdowns people are recalibrating for uh, a kind of an indeterminate uh, environment right
0: yeah no I think I think look lockdowns that are forced is one thing but I think that there's you know, also a shift in, in, in consumer behavior you see you see it in the consumer confidence numbers as well you know it, it, if people get nervous about you know stepping outside and and, and conducting their daily livelihoods, you know, it's just gonna you know, it has a knock on effect. and I think you know, we're in we're look it could be noise because we're obviously in summer and and people are rechanging the way they they vacation and and how to deal with you know you know being more landlocked and you know, not being able to try travel around the world as much that might you know, actually create a boost in in some areas of the of the country. But I think that you know we're in this weird state where we don't know if the trajectory that we saw coming out. Is going to be that robust? I mean, I'm skeptical of that, and that's because I read the tea leaves of how the bond market is digesting it all along. And so, I, I think that you know that narrative is going to get tested, and then the question is like, how deep does it go, and what what's what snaps people out of like, oh, maybe it isn't that bad. Like, so I think that's why August it could be typically a snooze fest, but it can, you know, there could be you know outliers that come out of nowhere that completely derail, you know, the, the current narrative.
1: So, this is really interesting. And this is a key part of why I wanted to have you come share your perspective. Um, you just mentioned this idea of reading the tea leaves that the bond market is telling us. And one of the sort of narratives or notions that I've seen uh, repeated, you know, kind of frequently on, on FinTwitter, on crypto Twitter, is the idea that the bond market has been telling us a different story or, or potentially multiple different stories than the equities market. And obviously, we live in a paradigm where the equities markets are sort of the the golden god when it comes to the media narrative about the markets. But so I guess two part question. One, has, has the bond market been telling us a different story than the equities markets? And, and if to the extent that it has, what is the story that the bond market is telling us?
0: Yeah. So I would say, yes, the bond market has been telling us a different story. But maybe before I, I, I explain why that's the case, let me give you the the counter arguments, which you you end up seeing a lot on Fin Twitter, and, and and those that are kind of more bond bearish, they're like, well, bonds don't give us any signal any signal effect any longer because the Fed is buying so much. So why should we even look at them? And I think that's like a, a convenient narrative that you know many of the naysayers want to use to say, well, don't look at bonds. They're, they're really you know useless at, at this point. You have to just kind of focus on you know, risk markets, and that's really a, a reflection of the economy. I mean. Again, being trained and and, and having worked, you know, over two decades in the bond market and understanding what it's been telling us, not just for the last 20 years, but quite frankly, the last 40, if not the last 200 years. uh, And I'm gonna go really really way back, you know, we've we've been in a structural declining rate environment outside of the inflation scare that we saw in the 1970s uh, and briefly in the 1930s. But if you really go back and you think about how far have real rates have been declining, they've been declining for Multiple, you know, multiple centuries, uh, and and that's really a function of you know productivity changes. Uh, you, know, you know, the printing press is one of the one of the biggest kind of innovations out there. Uh, of course, we you know we all kind of um, bow down at the altar of, of, of tech and think that you know we're living in this day and age of amazement, and it's true we are. But we, we've you know, we've come a long way where you know you know real growth or the real kind of ability for economies as as large as they have become at some point they start to slow down and we've been slowing down for decades because we just can't keep growing at the same pace as we were i mean it's going to either eat up all the resources in the world i mean there's so many other you know side topics that we can go into but you know real rates are basically telling us that growth is not going to be that robust going forward and it has been the case like that you know give or take a few moments in time where real rates spike up higher they've been basically heading lower and just not believing this narrative that, you know, sustainable recovery is in the making.
1: So uh, what are the implications of this? I mean, I guess like, uh, well, one, uh, how would people behave differently if they were listening in this way? Or is that such a counterfactual that it's hard to
0: say? It's hard to say. I mean, I think, look, um, the other piece that, you know, that it's also thrown out there, I think, you know, for selfish reasons, like, oh, you should not have bonds in your portfolio. And like, it, it's tricky, right? I mean, obviously, you don't want to be buying negative yielding assets and slowly chipping away at your capital. I mean, I, I get that, and that's and that's probably specifically true for the you know, the retail investor and for the you know, the private investor. That does you know, that may have other alternatives, especially outside of the realm of government bonds? But you know, there is a large segment of the investor base that has to be involved in the bond market for fiduciary re- reasons and for legal reasons. Uh, like pensions and banks and so forth. And so they're always going to be involved. and, and, And they might drive, you know, bond prices to unrealistic levels. And that's a topic all in and of itself. But I mean, you know, if you kind of still go back and circle back to, you know, why are bonds telling us a different story than equities? Largely, I think, you know, there's this view that, you know, what else can the Fed do if we do see, you know, a bankruptcy, you know, wave, if insolvencies were to pick up again, if we actually see a natural side of a recession, you know, the um, the acute lockdown shut down impact and creating like a, like a very short-lived kind of depression, you, it's easy to dismiss that and say, oh, look, that was just because of the pandemic, it's gonna all come back, it's gonna be fine. It ignores the reality that, you know, we were already fragile heading into this environment and that credit markets and the ability to service debt you know, we're pretty stretched. And so I feel like, you know, the, the the core bond markets, which is the government markets and the TIPS market, they're looking at all this information and they're saying that, you know, look, the, the Fed and the, and the U.S. government, obviously valiant efforts. They did a massive campaign in March and April to, to, to try to stop the bleeding in the economy, but they perhaps maybe shot a lot of their ammo too quick. And now they've really, you know, limited the ability to actually, you know, um, arrest any sort of uh, second wave, both in COVID, but also second wave in the economy slowing down in a more proper recession. And I think that is lost upon, I think, most equity folks. I mean, they're just viewing like, look, liquidity's great, money's coming into the system, everything's guaranteed to go up. Everything's based on price, right? So if you, if you wake up one day and you realize that you can't service those debts or you can't maintain those equity valuations, There'll just be a reset. Those companies will either still exist or not. And we'll just have different price levels. But, you know, the world will keep going as it always does.
1: So this actually brings up a really interesting question, uh, which is, you know, obviously we've had this major, major kind of world shifting event that has created a new context for everything uh, in COVID-19. But, you know, late last year, like call it Q4 2019 and coming into this year, what were you looking at? You know, I guess what was the story that bond markets were telling then and how much has that been changed versus reaffirmed by what we've seen subsequently and in, in, uh, in COVID-19?
0: I think what look, what I, and I've been watching this, and I've been—I'm a money markets um, you know, follower, and and really, you know, like to look at the plumbing to see what 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 it's telling us, and 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 really since the all throughout 2019, culminating with the repo scare that we had in September, which led to the Fed's knock QE of of really ramping up the balance sheet initially, uh, and then what happened through March. I think we're all part of the same story. That you know, there's only so much balance sheet in the in the world, unless you actually start to expand it on the private uh, on the public sector side, you know, either through governments or through central banks, uh, you know, printing money and and just expanding the ability to service all these assets. So, I, I mean, I think you know, it, it, it was it, it was at the end of the day signaling that we're a very late cycle that you, you you could only you know issue so much debt and expect things not to either start to break down. Um, in 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 that kind of environment i mean when when you have things priced to perfection like we did and now we're trying to re- reflate these assets you know um you know more broadly in the s p or or wherever um it's 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 hard to maintain those valuations unless you have real honest earnings growth and you, and you're really are able to service debts forever and that's why we're seeing a big rise in zombie companies that only can survive if rates are at zero. Um, and so I think, you know, we, we, we you know the Fed, you have to give them some credit. They tried to raise rates. They didn't get too far. They tried to reduce liquidity in the system and they had to unwind QT. And, and then it really just created this this window between uh, the summer of last year, really through the beginning of this year, that there was just not enough capacity on the private sector side to, to handle all this debt. And it led to these weird gyrations that we saw in middle of March middle of March and, and they had to step in and that's why the Fed keeps calling it market functioning that they're buying 120 billion of assets for market functioning. They're just clearing up and making space and so the system can, can actually keep operating.
1: So this, I mean, this brings up a really interesting question about how much agency the Fed actually has with these decisions. And I guess to what extent uh, the agency or lack thereof is a, a vector of uh, just uh, market functioning or political will. So I mean, I guess that's my question is, you know, we kind of look at each of these meetings, you know, in, with a microscope and examine the decisions. But on a, on a slightly higher level, how much actual room to make a, a, a broadbanded decision? Does the Fed have?
0: That's a great question. And look, I think at this juncture, I, um, it's it, there is an element of national security. I think you know you've had Luke Grumman on your on your on your on your uh, podcast, and he's been on this for way, way ahead of most people. And there there is an you know at the end of the day, the Fed is still part of the U.S. Uh, and in U.S. is going to do every, it's going to do everything in its powers to make sure that we have a properly functioning banking system and. You know, if you were to you know ask any sort of leaders down in 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 d c like what's the most important thing you know for keeping your your country safe? you have to have a viable banking system and you have to have a great military, which you know they're defending both of those by keeping the the treasury market well functioning.
1: do you think then i mean, I guess that it, it's I mean, it gets back to this question of, uh, of whether they can actually shift things, you know, for, for I guess what, what then becomes, is, the, is there a way to unwind this or is this, you know, how does this play out? I guess is the question that I'm, I'm kind of grasping at here. You know, it's, it's an interesting yeah, no, thing. You, yeah.
0: You know, in the, in the, re, in the here and now in the real time, we, like we'd like to try to like forecast the future and really get a sense of like, how can this really all play out? And, Anyone that comes on your show, or anyone, quite quite frankly, has no clue because, I mean, there's some scenarios that are more feasible than others. I mean, I think what we're trying to play towards is the scenario that, like we had during World War II, and and you had a very close relationship between the Treasury and the Fed, and you know, and we got you know, debt to GDP numbers that were basically roughly where we are now, and 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 world and life continued, and we got to the other side. And you had to make some changes on how banks operated, but you know, what's obviously the, the world's now much more complex than the 1940s, 50s banking system, and it really actually kind of brings us to the the juncture of of what I mean. I think a lot of your your your, your audience you know focuses on, which is you know the role of alternative kind of assets, uh, alternative means of exchange like crypto, yeah. and I think it's starting to really open up that discussion, you're hearing central banks around the world think about you know, having their own central bank digital currencies. Um, I think it, it, you have to you have to create an environment where you, things cannot be fixed instantaneously, right? So you try to stop the bleeding and then you, you want to slow down the process as long as possible so that you can figure out what is the exit strategy. And it might very well mean that the exit strategy requires a rethinking of how the Fed operates relative to commercial banks and dealers. And, you know, it's, it's. I mean, I think I've heard uh, some call, like, you know, the Fed now the the market maker of last resort. Technically, they're supposed to be the lender of last resort. They're not supposed to be making markets. Um, and so it, I, th- I think they're doing all that to try to uh, buy time to figure out what is going to be the new world once we get out of this. And, and this might mean a three or five or 10 year plan, and it probably also brings into, into, the, into, into this discussion, you know, the role of the dollar and everything else. So I feel like it's such, it's such large topics to tackle that you cannot just do it on the fly. And so I think they're trying to set us up for this new world without they themselves knowing all of the answers.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a a a good perspective, and I certainly agree that trying to actually know the future is a is a tough 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 request. But let's actually shift then. You know, you kind of segued to the dollar, and I think there's been an interesting conversation happening uh, over the last couple weeks as gold and silver have kind of cruised up, uh, and uh, as the dollar, or at least the DXY, has uh, has taken a bit of a nosedive. And so, you know, anytime you have chart one going, going one way and chart two going the other way. Uh, there's an easy, easy narrative correlation there. Um, and certainly it, it kind of filtered over into the Bitcoin, uh, environment where we had a big, big jump up from, you know, the 9,000 that we've been hovering at for just about ever, uh, up to, uh, over 11,000 on Monday. Um, and, uh, which has been sustained this week. I guess, you know, one of the conversations around that has been, um, well, there's I guess two parts that I'd love your take on. The first is uh, is whether this dollar move is actually the kind of root cause uh, of this shift up in these other kind of you know uh, alternatives. But then the second piece, which you know is obviously directly related to kind of the the bond strategist work, is uh, there's been a narrative. I mean, you saw it in Bloomberg just the other day of institutions looking around at gold and saying hmm, maybe they can do some of the job that treasuries had been doing because we're moving into kind of a, a negative real interest rate world so I guess that you know two two kind of very different paths to take us down you can you know, pick pick whichever one you want to start with but one is what you know what's your take on uh, on this conversation about uh institutions looking uh, away from government debt and into gold um, and then two is uh is more kind of broad based you know what we're seeing with the dollar and uh, and and maybe you know to the extent that the bond market has a, a has kind of a perspective on that that'd be interesting too
0: yeah no so Mingel... um I'll start with the gold one part you know cuz I think that that's got um people's attention especially what's been happening uh with the big melt up and, and it's really the other side of what I was describing earlier a you know a pretty big move in, into negative real rates which it you know, becomes like a kind of key tenant for you know gold aficionados and and, and you know, just you know for the record I mean I do think gold is a store of value and, and I actually you know do think that it merits uh, being in, in one's portfolio in some shape or another. But what what I'm, I get nervous about, like towards the end and uh, of big moves like this, um, is like for those that actively trade or for those that you know try to you know you could be you know you could either be an investor or a trader, right? I mean, or you could be both if you could actually man- manage that well. But you know, sometimes when you get towards these emotional points where you make all t- time highs and you start to kind of you, you drink your own Kool-Aid that you think that this thing's going to keep ripping to the upside, and and you and you hear the you know the the, you know, the the gold bulls just stay on one side and not really try to hear the other side of the story. That to me starts to become like a red flag that we're maybe getting close to the end of the rally. I mean, it might still have you know many many more years of upside, but in in the here and now, it's it's quite possible that we're at a, a point where, of exhaustion. I don't know. I mean, technicals. Uh, kind of suggest that we're starting to get there. Maybe there's more upside. I, I, I'm not trying to make a call here specifically, but but for, for, for gold to kind of make that quantum leap to becoming a, a pure substitute to you know, high quality collateral assets like, like treasuries or even mortgages or within the banking system, you need to have a huge re-rating of its uh, importance in the, in the banking system. And that only happens not by people forcing up the price. That really happens by by decree. And it really requires, you know, all the world powers to kind of sit in a room and rethink like its role and, and really kind of rethink, you know, again, back to the dollar, which know we can discuss later, and rethink like what is like the, the common denominator for all transactions globally? What is the value that, of, of what we care about? And it, we might have that discussion in the years ahead. I just don't think we're going to have that in the middle of a pandemic slash, you know, you know, tensions between us and China so I feel like you know the dollar still will maintain its, its position in the world, and and gold is a great alternative, um, but it cannot. It's just not big enough to substitute what the bond market does for uh, just the kind of the plumbing of what we built. If we ch- if we decide to change that plumbing, then yeah, gold can have a, a huge huge role in that in that place as well as other alternative assets.
1: So, I think that's a, a really good distinction, right? There's the gold conversation in the context of what room this particular asset has to grow, you know, as some people maybe want to allocate a little bit more or less to it, even including new buyers, versus this structural role that, uh, that bonds play in, in the global market and the global plumbing, which is, a, a, you know, it's not necessarily dependent on or even related to any sort of short-term price action.
0: Yeah, and, and look, you know, I know we people want to poo-poo, and trust me, I'm not a huge fan of QE, and I think we've overdone it in, in many different ways. But Japan's been doing it for 20 plus years, and the, you know they still have JGBs, even though they're not really yielding much. They're still they're the backbone of their banking system, and so this is not just true for the U.S. banking system. It's for the global banking systems within each country's jurisdictions. You know, bonds, you know, are basically the the foundation of what makes up our banking system? So, if you want to change that, it really requires uh, you know a whole host of, of, of alterations that I don't think we're ready to make yet. So I, I actually
1: do want to come back to that in a little bit uh, in the context of the Judy Shelton nomination but first it's, you know kind of continuing this thread um, and looking at the dollar so Jeff Snyder obviously is super skeptical of these conversations around you know the the dollar is losing its weight and, and all sorts of stuff and and mostly that for him comes down to a belief that the Fed simply doesn't have the capacity and power that we ascribe it to flood the market quote unquote with dollars right he calls it a flood myth and he recently wrote about this in the context of this specific sort of gold treasuries and dollar conversation. and he pointed to the fact that the DXY is you know so weighted towards Europe and the yen when actually in his estimation the yen going up is sort of part of a larger dollar strength story. so it's actually kind of just a, a, a hard measure anyways. Uh, but part of what he referenced was the the bond market sort of not corroborating the the DXY story. so I guess I just wanted to get your take on on the dollar and what we've seen recently.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, look, I have a tremendous respect for Jeff as well. Never met him, never, never met him, never spoke with him, but seems like a nice guy and well intentioned. And you know, I feel like he's a little bit frustrated, like me, in, in that people want to, you know, force a narrative on how Fed actually conducts operations and what it means for the actual currency. And 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 although we you know, we kind of uh, generically say they're printing dollars, they're really just creating reserves in the system. Um, and and it's really the inability of those reserves to. Escape the system, which is why we don't have rampant inflation, and and that's why you know you know he I'm sure that's why he calls it the flood myth, but you know the you know the 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 Fed you know wants us to believe you know and wants us to to think that they're doing that. It's more like a, a game of confidence that they're trying to gin up and push up inflation expectations, because the alternative is 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 kind of a debt a debt bust from deflation aspect, and so they know what they're playing with. But they can't really necessarily create the dollars that the really the world really needs. You know, another great person, which I'm sure you probably have seen, like uh, Richard Werner, Richard uh, you know, scientific econ on, on Twitter. You know, he's done tremendous work over the years too. And then, you know, the, the the entities that actually create money are the banking system. So you need a viable commercial banking system, and this is true for both the domestic banks as well as global banks to create dollars. I mean, I think people, some people don't know and realize that. There's a lot of dollars that are created outside of the Fed's domain in the global banking system, which are just unaccounted for. We just don't know how much it is. I mean, we we see BIS estimates of like there's a you know, massive dollar shortages. In other words, meaning that you know uh, entities outside the U.S. have borrowed a lot of dollars and eventually they have to pay back those dollars. But you know we don't know. You know it's twelve or sixteen trillion, whatever the number may be. These are big numbers, but it's really just the the um, the grease in the system to keep global trade operational and working around the clock. So that's why the dollar is so paramount. Um, I mean, I think, you know, when you look at that, it, when you understand the plumbing that way, but then you try to uh, look at the price action of the currency itself, There, you know, sometimes you have to almost like separate them and, and really think of them in, in separate ways. I mean, yes, the dollar value that you're seeing relative to other currencies or on a broad basket, like the Dixie, or you know which i rather look at is the trade weighted dollar. Yes, the dollar has been going down in theory in value, but that's on a relative basis and to jeff's point i think it's it's a very good one when the yen is rallying, you know, as you know as we would say in you know in japan, you know, it's a yokunai. I mean that's no not good. I mean you don't, you don't want the yen to rally. That's usually a sign that you know people are looking for hard assets and safety, which is akin to what the dollar does anyway. So I'm 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 worried that you know you know if you look at the trade weighted dollar, which is much more of a cleaner way of looking at it that doesn't have the overweight of the euro in the yen, you're not seeing this big pickup because I think investors are realizing that the global growth story you know is still um, to be determined if it's actually going to come back in the same same manner. And we still have the, the possibility of wave twos coming in from COVID, which will probably most likely hit, you know. Less, less developed countries, much more so than developed countries, if it were to you know, pick up in, this, in the fall, that you know, if emerging market currencies are not rallying and therefore it's not like a risk on in FX space, then this dollar kind of weakness could be a head fake. I you know I think
1: it's a, a really interesting lens to to look at this with and and maybe just to kind of I, I want to actually get your uh, lens on a couple of other things right because they're the sort of high profile uh, economic issues or, or I guess in some ways geopolitical issues as well and how they show up in in kind of market reaction um, so you know one of the things you mentioned in terms of the Fed's uh, current or what we saw from the fed yesterday is these sort of smoke signals that listen you know the the fiscal needs to pick up you know, we, we can't do everything uh, and, uh, and fiscal needs to come back in. So right now, obviously, there's huge disagreement between the left and the right uh, around what the next round of, uh, of fiscal you know, stimulus engagement, whatever you want to call it, is going to consist of. But you're talking about trillions of dollars, right? The, the low offer is a trillion dollars. Um, how does that potentially impact the bond market? What does the bond market make of those conversations? What are they expecting?
0: So the the basic rule of thumb that I've kind of always uh, gone back to over the years, you know, and, and I've and I've used the supply argument myself to try to understand, like you know, you know, there's competition in the sense that if you produce more bonds, in theory, you know, based on you know, kind of textbook economics, you would expect those bond prices to go down to try to entice investors to come in. Yields would go up, uh, and and that and that's true most of, you know most of the time, but. Only really works when you have a properly functioning economy that's in a growth phase. So if you're in an environment like we are now, where it's you know it's uncertain, like what is the path for the for the U.S. economy, and you and you're and you're just seeing the fiscal side just replacing the drop off in aggregate demand from the private sector, uh-huh. it, it shouldn't. I mean. It could over time, and it will. I mean, I think if if we are we get our arms around this, we will have higher rates in the future, and then that will be something applauded by by the Fed and everyone else to kind of as a you know, as a vindication that you know we're seeing uh, normality come back in. But in the very very near term, like the second uh, stimulus package, which probably won't be as big as the first one, and might end up being more deflationary in nature and expose this kind of weakness and the, the delays around. The, the the bankruptcy wave as well as insolvency wave that's still out there, both at the consumer level and at the small business level. And so, if if like the fiscal support is not big enough, yeah, and, you know, the bond market in theory ha- is going to have to underwrite all this new paper that's going to hit the market. But there's going to be willing actors stepping up to buy that because at least at least they know what they're buying versus buying some credits which may go bankrupt in two or three weeks.
1: Interesting. Uh- Super interesting. A similar question, I guess, uh, around The U.S. and China, you know, this is again—it's we're so used to seeing how news and news cycles play out in equities markets. But you know, when we see heightened tension, like you know, last week in particular, there was a lot of rhetorical bluster going back and forth, and even some real action in the the consulate closures or the dueling consulate closures. Uh, What do bond markets make of either the U.S.-China specifically, or just sort of that type of geopolitical event?
0: Well, I think you kind of were mentioning earlier in, in about how like, you know, we've seen you know, large institutions slowly shifting away from treasuries or at least contemplating them as an alternative because rates are low and gold is a zero you know cash flow asset, but at least you kind of know what you're dealing with. Um I mean, foreign central banks, this is not no secret, this has been going on for you know over a half a decade, if not longer, you know, have been slowly peeling back and investing some of their excess dollars into gold, right? And so you know, so, you know, when you think about what's, these have been long-term trends where this, there's like a a de facto kind of thinking that people think, oh, foreigners own our debt. Well, not really, not as much as they used to. Now they're like in, in the low 30s percent of our national debt. And the majority now is being held by domestic investors and or the Fed, right? So, you know, in, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, if we were having this sort of you know more more acrimonious tension between you know you know world superpowers and one is indebted to the other. You would think that there would be some sort of premium start to get priced into the bond market. That hey, what if you know there's some sort of retaliation uh, at this juncture? I mean, I think, and this is me just being a little bit tongue in cheek. If you go and, and look at how much the Fed bought in the in the couple weeks of of March, like I mean, they bought. Like uh, almost like two trillion dollars worth of treasuries, they can basically buy out any sort of retaliatory response that would have ever, ever. I mean, hopefully, never gets to that point. But if any central bank wanted to, like, really test the bond market, I think the Fed has basically signaled that they will step in and take down the other side. Like, and it's and then it will be yes, very volatile for a couple of weeks, and and that might be an issue. But I think that you know, there is a, a subtle message out there that you know, don't mess with our bond market because we can take it down and bring it back home. And I think so, like, that's the way I look at it, just very high level. And this is, you know, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theory, but I think like when people are always like, oh, what if you know foreigners sold all their debt? I was like, well, then someone else has to buy it. It's either going to be domestic investors or in the interim, probably the Fed will have to step up in a big way. And they kind of shown a glimpse of that back in March.
1: So it's really interesting, actually. And I think the reason – so I don't think it actually sounds – or maybe it would have 10 years ago sounded kind of conspiracy theory. But I think that there's a growing appreciation of the centrality of the US-led financial system in its power in the world order. And there's this old narrative, obviously, it's not just a narrative, it's kind of a truism of the dollar being backed by, you know, guns. And and I, in a lot of ways, it feels like almost the reverse is true, that the real power in the system ha- is and has for a long time been financial. And I mean, certainly anytime that there are hearings in Congress or the Senate around the role of digital currencies, particularly, you know, non-sovereign, non-state currencies like Bitcoin, that is the key question is, does this undermine the Sort of sovereignty and centrality of the the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve system. So, I, in a lot of ways, I actually I don't think it's. I, I think the fact that you are picking up on signals that the the Fed may be trying to, in some way, maybe even subconsciously signaling that they have the capacity to absorb any amount of that type of pressure in sort of economic warfare is probably uh, is probably right on.
0: No, thanks. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I think look, there is obviously. Um a lot of different messages we could take away from these things, and I and I think your point is and that's why, as I said earlier, I, I think central banks would like to figure out a way of, of, of introducing or uh, their own kind of uh, digital currencies. And at the same time, given how far along a lot of the the currencies that are already in, you know in place, like crypto and, and so forth, I mean, like a Bitcoin within the crypto space, it's gonna be hard to shut those things off. So I, I feel like it's it's just a matter of finding. Like again, back to what I said earlier, you can't just make these decisions overnight, and you don't want to do it in a in a rush moment like we are now. But I do think that we're we're trying to reinvent uh, real time over the coming years the role of the Fed vis-a-vis the commercial banking system vis-a-vis alternative assets and how they all kind of interplay with each other, and and, and hopefully it doesn't you know require some sort of you know economic warfare to to trigger that.
1: Yeah, totally. I so I mean let's one one kind of example of this or something that people have highlighted as potential shift in tone is there's been quite a dust up over the nomination of Judy Shelton. And I think, you know, there's kind of two two very different reasons uh for that. One is policies, right? And past comments around either a return to the gold standard or just a sort of disinclination towards the need for central banks in general. The second is kind of a little bit different, it's politics, right? And and uh, a and and a worry that, uh, she doesn't seem to care much for the, uh, the separation of powers, right. Between the fed and the treasury. Uh, what do you make of that? What do you, what, what have you seen kind of, a uh, the, the reaction to that nomination, uh, be like, and, and you know, is it, is it something that's even worth paying attention to?
0: Uh, I, look, I think what you're picking up, picking up on is important to, to highlight. I do think that, you know, as with everything in life, people are, are um, or fearful of the unknown or something that's different I mean not just kind of uh, pulling the party line and, and I, I actually you know read a lot of read a lot of her papers and you know, subscribe to some of her basic tenets on on hard money and, and, and I do think that you know, she, she would be a really welcome voice at the Fed. Um, that's my own personal view. Uh, and, I, and I think that you know people down in DC that don't really have a full understanding of how the system really works and just see something new means potentially bad therefore let's challenge it. I think you know there, there's there's it, it could be the, the right those kind of people are probably what you need to have in place if if what I described all along through this, this podcast that we're trying to rethink you know a very complex system within the dollar banking system Fed globally how do we do this It's good to have you know fresh thinking like someone like like Judith Shelton.
1: So uh, before we started recording, you said something really profound that I, I'd love for you to just you know, kind of put a, put a capstone on maybe as we sort of round out this conversation. You said the bond market has been the truth teller for decades, but no one wants to pay attention. Um, and it sounded from what we've spoken about before that this has to do with sort of the larger global growth story. But maybe you can just kind of su- sum up your thoughts on this and, and perhaps kind of shoot us forward about, about how we should start to listen or pay attention.
0: Yeah. So no, thanks for picking up on that too. I mean, I do think that um, it's it's one of the the areas that you know has always been viewed as more as an arcane area of the financial markets, but in fact, actually, it's the biggest um, piece of the puzzle and really uh, the glue that keeps it all together and the foundation, as I described. And so, I think that you know through you know through conversations like this and just in general, you know, there's been a growing appreciation of trying to understand like how the plumbing works and and you kind of come back to this common denominator, which is the bond market and what it's telling us. And so, um, I mean, I do, I do think that, you know, those that are really in touch can can see the miles away and maybe see it a little bit too early and, and and that, you know, influences decisions and so forth. But um, I do think that what, you know, the bond market, <clears throat> is at this juncture, you know, signaling that we're not out of the woods yet and that, you know, there is, you know, larger forces at play that, you know, really could be t- tied back to, you know, to to national security. And and I think that we need to really be aware of those, those messages when we start to think about, you know, our daily livelihoods and what we do with our, you know, our financial assets, as well as, you know, conduct our lives in general. So, I think that you know there's it's going to continue to grow in importance the the, the problem I have, you know, to kind of you know, sum it up at the end, it took this long, and now yields really barely offer nothing very little to investors, and now they're being forced in to buy at the most uneconomic levels. That's really the tragedy in this whole situation that you know if if folks really had picked up and realized that, hey, when rates were at three percent, two percent, four percent, they were much more attractive, but they were being told. Don't buy it because equity dividend yields are much higher. Therefore, why would you even touch bonds? Meanwhile, they end up becoming a really, you know, stability factor in, in your portfolio.
1: I mean, this is the there's a larger question about whether whether an economy that is based on you know sort of easy credit and perpetual growth can redesign itself for resiliency without totally cratering. You know, and that that I think plays out on both individual and uh, and sort of larger macro levels. One hundred percent. Well George uh, it's been an awesome conversation. Uh, I know the the listeners have really appreciated kind of getting getting this insight into the bond market and just the the perspective that that helps bring to uh, so many of these other issues. Uh, for people who want to follow you where can they find you your writing your work?
0: Yeah, I mean the the best place at this at this point is just you know on Twitter at bond strategist. I also do some freelance work uh with, uh, with a number of outlets, uh, and one one called macrohive.com, which is you know really trying to create like a virtual strategy world for, you know, for the you know for the everyday person as well as an institutional investor to get information on on these complex macro topics. Uh, but for now, you know the, my main area would be just on Twitter at, at Bond Strategist.
1: Awesome. Well, uh, we will definitely have you back to talk more about all this stuff. And again, I really appreciate you spending the time today. Great. Great to be on. Thank you for having me. When reflecting on this conversation, I keep coming back to this idea of a long-term structural shift to a lower-growth environment and what that means. We've created an economy that is absolutely dependent on this sort of ever-growing growth model, and it hurts us in so many ways. It hurts us in terms of our resiliency, it hurts us in terms of our capacity to deal with change. But at the same time, it is enormously enriching and has led to an incredible amount of wealth being created. How we reconcile this larger secular shift to a lower growth environment and to the need and perhaps the desire of consumers to have more resiliency and less consumption in their lives with the fundamental way that our economy is organized is, I believe, one of the key questions for the next 20, 30, 40 years. Of course, on the way to that 20, 30, 40 years, there are going to be a lot of very important issues that happen, so I hope that this conversation has given you an interesting insight into how a bond strategist thinks about these different parts of the market, about what we heard from the Fed this week, and so much more. So thanks as always for listening, guys, and until tomorrow, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.